Women, life, freedom. It's a political slogan now familiar to most of the world. It's echoing through streets and in buildings all across Iran and the globe. The first wave of protest was driven by the death of a 22-year-old woman on September 16th. Masa Amini, whose Kurdish name is Gina Amini, was in police custody after her arrest by the so-called morality police for wearing unsuitable attire. While the initial protests were largely led by young women who saw in this death a symbol of a long-standing repression that every woman faces in Iran, the demonstrations have grown to cut across gender, class, and ethnic origin and are threatening to topple the theocratic regime. Today's episode of Speaking Out of Place focuses on an interview with Professor Persis Karim, who's the director of the Iranian Research Center at San Francisco State University. But before we hear from Professor Karim, let me give a little bit more background. There's unprecedented solidarity across genders and classes, and most importantly, across ethnicities. For the first time, we hear people in Tehran and other major cities chant slogans in support of the most deprived groups in Iran, the Baluch and the Kurds. Women, life, freedom, in fact, is derived from the Kurdish. It's in Kurdistan and Baluchistan that the majority of protesters have been killed by the state. These are majority Sunni populations and non-Persian-speaking communities, and they've been brutalized by the regime since 1979. Besides uniting Iranians across ethnic lines, the protests have also galvanized an entire generation. The bravery of teenagers and college-aged people protesting is also unprecedented, and they're dying for the simple expression of their most basic human rights. More than 400 protesters have been killed so far, and among them at least 60 children. The regime has thus launched a war against women, against ethnic minorities, and against the young. It's also attacking knowledge producers and cultural workers. Of the 15,000 detained, many are civil rights activists, as well as journalists, actors, musicians, rappers, lawyers, Baha'is, and educators. Rapper Tomar Salehi was charged with, quote, waging war against God and, quote, corruption on earth, and for this he could face the death penalty. He's also been accused of spreading propaganda, cooperating with a hostile government, and incitement to violence. Mousel, one of his most famous works, is an indictment of all forms of complicity with repression. Here are some of his sample lines. Hack journalists, tabloid reporters, court singers, find a mouse hole. Officer, thug, mercenary, executioner, find a mouse hole. Useful idiots, appointed officials, reformists, find a mouse hole. At this point, it's clear that the demonstrations are not about reform. This movement is a mass movement. It's the, the beginning of a revolution. People's choice 
people's choice to be Muslim or Baha'i or Christian or Catholic or Jew. Now it's my great pleasure to introduce Persis Karim, professor, poet, and scholar-activist who teaches comparative and world literature at San Francisco State University, where she also holds the Nada Nabari Endowed Chair and directs the Center for Iranian Diaspora Studies. Her pioneering work in the emerging field of Iranian diaspora studies, primarily in literature, has helped to galvanize a wider engagement with transnational and interdisciplinary approaches, as well as to foster the work of younger scholars. She's the editor or co-editor of three anthologies of Iranian diaspora literature, A World Between Us, Poems, Short Stories, and Essays by Iranian Americans, Let Me Tell You Where I've Been, New Writing by Women of the Iranian Diaspora, and Tremors, New Fiction by Iranian American Writers. She is currently completing a documentary film project called The Dawn is Too Far, Stories of Iranian American Life, which will be released in spring 2023. Her poetry has appeared in a number of national publications, including Kalalu, Reed Magazine, The New York Times, The Raven's Perch, and Green Linden Press. I'm going to start, if you don't mind, by reading a text. I have a cousin who's my age, and I've kept in touch with her over the past 45 years, and she wrote me something the day after the security forces invaded Sharif University which is one of the most prestigious universities in Iran. It's kind of like the Harvard of Iran. And she said that was like, you know, one of those, there have been many, many turning points, but that one was a big one. And she wrote this to me. And this is my cousin who is, she, during the revolution, shortly after the revolution, there were discussions about the Islamification of Iranian society. And She was one of many, many hundreds of thousands of young women and girls who were concerned about the institution of a mandatory hijab. At the start of the revolution, the hijab was considered part of the symbol of a rejection of anti-Western, anti-imperial control over Iran. She was 16 at the time and in high school, and she was protesting against the compulsory hijab. She was arrested. She served several years in prison, three, I think three years in prison. And she's been following these events very closely, obviously, because they sh- the 79 revolution shaped her whole life and was responsible for the scattering of people in her own family. So she has two brothers, two of whom, one lives in Canada, one lives in Vienna, and she stayed in Iran. And this is kind of typical. Most Iranian families are scattered around the globe as a result of the events of 1979. So when the events of Masa Emini's death occurred and the protests erupted on September 16th, I immediately got in touch with her and, you know, in the very coded way, because she has to be very careful, I asked her a little bit about her opinions. She would give me sort of, you know, 
vague reports. And on October 17th, she wrote this. We are looking forward to good news. Hopefully the professors of Sharif University are going to have a gathering in the university to condemn what has been done to their students. People have plans to go out step by step. We have tried every possible way. We tried voting, even when there are very few acceptable candidates. The next time there was an election, there were even fewer people that we consider valuable to be nominated. We have tried reforms. Corruption is a huge barrier to achieving any results. We have tried dialogues. They do not listen. They think this country is theirs. They have imprisoned us. This land belongs to the people who live in it. In some ways, that was like the perfect encapsulation of what she, a person of her generation who's lived through the past 43 years of the Islamic Republic, has experienced that this is a regime that is inflexible, unable to tolerate any dissent, unwilling to compromise, unwilling to see its population in, you know, in relationship to the broader world in which young people are living. And for her, somebody who didn't, who experienced the revolution, not with the advent of cell phone technology, but through, you know, people organizing and protesting in the streets. This is another moment where Iran has kind of erupted and responded. The response has been just ugly. It's been a pretty violent and widespread crackdown. And of course, one of the things about the Islamic Republic that's really important to know is that it has invested a great deal of its national resources into the security forces. So you have the Iran Revolutionary Guard Council, you have the state police, you have the local police, you have the military, and it has utilized so much of its national resources in policing its own population. So whenever there have been protests, and there have been many over the years, it's often met with extreme violence on the part of the state. Uh, I want to say that these events of the recent protests in Iran are not new. In fact, they're a continuation of several earlier protest movements and attempts to bring about real concerted change to Iran. There have been attempts to reform some of the laws and under Mohammad Khatami, who was the president who was elected in the mid, you know, in the early 2000s, he was considered a reformist president where there was more open relationship between Iran and other countries and the sort of rejection of neither East nor West sort of softened a little bit. But the ultimately the reform platform was not successful. So in the mid-2000s, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad was elected. Under his leadership, Iran sort of, you know, tightened its grip on state control of the media, censorship, and regular sort of cracking down on political dissent. So by the time his re-election comes around in 2009, there was a, a, basically it was considered a fraudulent election. The election, many people perceived it as being rigged. There was major protests in the streets of Tehran after the election results were called. Millions of people 
marched in the streets. And the government's response was to arrest those candidates who ran for election. And basically, thousands of people were killed, arrested, and executed. So 2009 was a very big watershed moment. And if you think about it regionally, 2009 predated the Arab Spring. And so that was a kind of watershed both in Iran, but throughout the region. And Iran was not successful. And of course, now we can look at the Arab Spring, the countries that were participating in the Arab Spring, and they too were not terribly successful because eventually in a place like Egypt and Tunisia, the forces of dictatorship eventually were successful in overturning the popular aspirations of those revolutions and revolutionary moments. So Iran, in some ways, has been very active for a very long time, and it's happened in both these big protest movements, but it's also happened in quieter, less visible ways with reform movements. And one that I want to point to that's very pertinent to this moment is the One Million Signatures campaign, which started in the early 2000s, was led by a group of lawyers, human rights activists, and women who were campaigning on behalf of women's rights to, to modify and change some of the domestic laws that governed gender apartheid or gender segregation and governed the laws pertaining to marriage, divorce, and child custody. This campaign ran for several years, and the goal was to bring a million signatures to the parliament and call for a, a change in you know, some of the domestic laws that governed women's rights and women's legal uh, rights in cases involving domestic, you know, domestic law. Instead of greeting this as an opportunity to work collaboratively with its own citizens, many of those women were arrested, put in jail, and tried under the auspices of being traitors or pro-Western sympathizers. So that campaign, in some ways, was really the most essential to understanding women's rights in Iran, that they tried to reform domestic laws under the governance of Sharia law and were not successful. And in fact, the government's response was to arrest, try, and execute some of these same human rights activists. So if you think about the moment of 2022, when Masa Amini is killed by the security forces for allegedly violating the hijab laws, the morality police are an outgrowth of this larger identity that the Islamic Republic has, which is we are a Shiite state. We are a state that is governed by Sharia law and governed by clerical rule, which is called Vel. They saw these attempts to reform domestic laws as undercutting or undermining their supreme leadership, if you will, as clerics and as clerics in who see no distinction between religion and the law and politics. Many of those female human rights activists and reformers are either still in prison, exiled, or, you know, fighting a legal battle, a prolonged legal battle. And one of the people that most people know about is Shireen Abadi, who was, a, before the revolution, had been one of the first female judges. 
She was disbarred from being a judge. And then she campaigned for, you know, human rights, women's rights. And during the 2009 election protests, she was outside of the country. She was stripped of her Nobel Peace Prize. They raided her home and essentially harassed her family. And now since then, she's been living outside of Iran in England. She's one of many, many female activists who have been harassed and vilified by the Islamic Republic. There are many more who are lesser known. And I think the other thing that's really important is that the morality police and the laws that have governed what we now call gender apartheid, you know, sexual, you know, sex segregation in Iran have changed periodically, lessened and become more strict depending on who's in power. Since Raisi's election, of course, there have been more strict policing of people's, you know, public behavior, public dress. And so Masa Amini in some ways is a victim of a kind of attempt to regain control and intimidate the population, particularly women. The morality police are known to regularly harass women, shame them, intimidate them, take them into the, you know, local municipal police station and give them some kind of re-education. And essentially, it's a, first they get a warning, and the threat is, next time we'll take you in and give you 50 lashes or whatever. So the threat of violence is constant in the way that the state conducts itself. So when Masa Amini, you know, was beaten and collapsed and then later taken to the hospital. And then consequently, it was reported by another female journalist that she was in a coma and then she died. Basically, it sort of launched what I think was a longstanding grievance about women's rights and the particular ways in which the gender apartheid laws are constant and violent, right? That they're the basically governed by the threat of violence. Two women who reported both her coma and her death and, the, and reported on the family funeral are now in prison. So the other part of this that I think is really important to understand is that the Islamic Republic treats human rights activists and journalists similarly. They see them as a threat they see the idea of reporting on the abuses of the government as equally threatening as any uh, any victim's attempt to seek justice. So Iran has one of the highest percentages of arresting journalists in the world. And this is not new. This has been going on for decades, but it's particularly bad right now, which is in one way contributing to the media silence in inside of Iran, because one of the unique things about the fact that we're now in day 77 of these protests is there is no internet by which people can gain access to information about what's happening on the ground. Journalists have been rounded up and arrested and are facing very extreme charges, including being a traitor, violating the state, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there's a, a media blackout both internally inside Iran, but it also makes it difficult for people in the West to understand how to report on this. This is one of my frustrations, is that the Western media has so 
bought the narrative about Iran for so many decades that it doesn't even know how to cover this in any meaningful way. And they don't really try because in some ways they've bought the narrative of the United States. There have been nominal attempts, of course, but it's always, you know, dependent on footage that find its, finds its way out of Iran. I mean, people are using VPNs to get around the internet blockage, and there is some footage of protests that are getting out, but it's basically citizen journalists. And to some degree, the Western media has contributed to some of the silence about the protests. And that's also very disconcerting. I would like to ask you to elaborate on that. What is the U.S. narrative that that seems to be dominant? And what are we missing when we buy into that dominant narrative? Yes. Well, the dominant narrative has been that the government of the Islamic Republic is Iran, rather than the gut the government of the Islamic Republic, basically a hostile force to certainly the United States, but even to its own people. And the United States has been so focused on trying to tamp down Iran's regional power, its ability to acquire the technology to build a nuclear weapon, that it has for so long missed any other stories that might have come out there, including internal dissent inside of Iran. I think the other thing about the U.S. narrative is that, of course, Iran has been on the United States radar since 1979, both as a result of the revolution, because it was one of the first popular revolutions in modern memory that was a rejection of Western imperialism but supplanted by an ideologically Islamic, you know, religious identity. So not only did the United States respond to that event, they also have the long and painful memory of 52 American hostages. And if you look at U.S. foreign policy and U.S. media narratives, at the heart of what we've been missing is an obsession and preoccupation with the hostage crisis and with, of course, the idea of a Islamic state. And the, the loss for us has been, of course, an effort to understand something about the Iranian people, about the country of Iran, the culture of Iran, about resistance inside of Iran. And, you know, it has been sort of complicated by several administrations who've been overtly hostile, such as the Trump administration, who, you know, engaged in a direct assassination of a military leader inside of Iran, and clearly was intent on something more if he could get away with it. The threat of war has hung over Iran also. So various administrations and various policy hawks have thought of Iran as, you know, some something to be dealt with only militarily. I think since the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan, there's a little more caution about it. But nonetheless, we know that U.S. policy in the Middle East has been governed largely by the use of military might and little else. And so, of course, I don't want to put everything on the doorstep of the United States. Iran itself has been hostile. It's been trying to build its power in the region but also it's been it's this regime has felt under threat 
since 1980 when Iraq invaded the border with Iran, bombed the cities. Since there's been a war in Afghanistan, a war in Iraq, you know, military activity and elsewhere in the Middle East. So I think the paranoia is not solely out of nowhere. And I think that's one of the things that we have to understand about this regime is that it has felt since the beginning under siege. And so it's it's found any excuse to mobilize its military, its police, and to perceive any internal threat or external threat to be dealt with only through a violent response. So you mentioned something uh, that I thought was really important, which is the narrowing of the media spectrum, so to speak, in terms of journalism. And at the same time, we see the explosion of cultural forms. So one of the ways in which this regime has even met the use of culture in the context of protests is to arrest and try journalists, artists, filmmakers, and engage in regular torture and interrogation techniques that are quite violent, but also to use the charge of warring against God or corruption on earth, which are, you know, vague and quite open to the subjective interpretation of these clerics. So, for example, the rapper Tumaj Salahi, who's been arrested and is facing a possible death sentence, is one example of that idea that the creativity and genius of culture and cultural protests in response to having no way to affect change in their society has been met with this incredible charge of treason, you know, engaging in warring against God, and to offer up execution, a death sentence. Iran has met these protests with an active attempt to threaten execution and death as a way in which the 17,000 people to date who've been arrested might face such a severe sentence of either long-term imprisonment or death. That includes artists. And Shervin Hajipur is on bail and because he's on bail because he became so high profile internationally almost immediately. But there are many other artists and rappers, including another rapper who's Kurdish, who's been charged with a potential death sentence as well. Iran has used the death sentence regularly for prisoners of conscience, and it appears it will continue to do so in responding to these protests. And that's one of the, you know, critiques internationally by human rights organizations like the Center for Human Rights in Iran, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, is the normalization of death sentences for peaceful protests. I mean, none of these people are armed, right? None of these people are doing anything that, from our point of view, warrants the kind of you know charges that they're receiving. They're actively engaging in protests, you know, using a slogan like woman life freedom, cutting their hair, removing their hijabs, spray painting graffiti on the walls, do not warrant a death sentence. And yet they're trying to intimidate these protesters and stop the protests by using 
excessive force, both at the protests themselves, but, you know, disappearing people, making it impossible for people to have representation. There was a sham trial of this rapper, Tumaj Salahi, in which his attorney was not even allowed to be present. So it violates every human rights principle that we can imagine. And is part of the, I think, reason why people are continuing to protest is they do not want this regime to win. And they certainly don't want them to win on the grounds that they can imprison people and give them a so-called trial when everything points to the fact that they're not interested in any semblance of justice or, you know, legal proceedings that are above board at all. Our conversation then shifted to an interesting contradiction that Professor Karim wanted to bring forward, and that's between the very clear and systemic issue of gender apartheid on the one hand, but also the fact that more and more Iranian women are actually becoming better and better educated, and therefore their understanding of their situation becomes much more pointed. The beginning to the hijab, they really represent the disparity between the reality of being a woman or a girl who's received an education and constantly confronting the ceiling of possibility about where they can work, how much they can make, how much they can inherit, what their rights are as far as a domestic dispute or divorce. So the contradiction has become so glaring because there's so many women and girls who've experienced it. And that's what brought them to the streets initially. برای توی کوچه رخصیدن برای ترسیدن به وقت بوسیدن برای خواهرم خواهرت خواهرام professor Karim to talk about what she considers to be the, the anthem of this movement and she explained in detail what this music meant and why it was important um, it's a song that this young musician songwriter composed based on tweets um, asking why are you protesting and the tweets which were one sentence long are the lines in the song you know I'm protesting for my my sister, my daughter, my, you know, all of our sisters from Massa, um, protesting against a corrupt economic system, protesting against the Afghan refugees who live in Iran, who are second-class citizens. Um, and each one of those lines in the song, which are sort of beautifully articulated, represent both the grievances and the sense of hopelessness about the future and why the only response is to protest. Um, that's a kind of, I think, hope and also a kind of like, there's nothing else left for us to live for if we can't have clean air, you know, our children be free, being able to kiss, you know, that one of the most poignant lines is, um, for kiss for the lovers who kiss in the streets, because of course, displays of affection are forbidden. Music, you know, the performance of music by women is forbidden. Dance is forbidden. Um, you know, acts of joy, acts of life affirmation, are actually considered illegal. And I think 
we're now at a generation of, you know, the, the majority of these people protesting are Gen Z. They've seen the world through their cell phones. They know what people are doing in other parts of the world. They're connected to other youth. And therefore, they see the irony of living in a country that has oil, you know, that here's the other side of it. It has oil, and yet all of its resources are being used to police its own population, to support armies elsewhere, to build the power of this particular regime at the expense of its citizens. And the other part of this whole schism is also a generational schism. The majority of those in power in the Islamic Republic are average age 70. The majority of the population, 60, something like 65% of the population is under the age of 30. So it's a cultural response, a political response, and a response to a longstanding set of grievances. I think that, you know, to, to go back to your question about culture, I think when you don't have the ability to state your truth using the resources of journalism, having a public forum in front of a mu municipal leader or a national leader, when you can't go to a forum to speak frankly about what's happening to you or your community or your ethnic group, what other response can you have except protest and the use of art and culture, which is, you know, part of the fabric of Iranian society? So another really poignant image I saw early on was art students who put their hands in red paint and held their hands up you know, as if they were bloody. And these are dramatic images, which are both to remind their peers and fellow citizens about what's at stake, but they're also the images that seem to be getting out to the world more effectively than these mass protests where people are getting, you know, the crap beaten out of them or being hauled away in the trunk of a car or disappeared. Well, you know, Persis, I can't thank you enough for all you've said. It's been everything that is missing, seems to me, in terms of what we understand. And I'm going to ask you to do one more thing, which is I'd love to hear one of your poems. Persis Karim decided to choose a poem that to her expressed the pain and the loss of this historical formation, and especially the loss felt by those in diaspora. They're the product of large-scale migration in between 1979 and 1988. In that period, when the revolution took place, when there were mass executions, when there was a wholesale change of government and, you know, expectations about what Iranian citizens should look like, many people left. Many of them were sympathizers of the Shah, of course, but many more were not. Many were leftists who had participated in the revolution and were dismayed by what became of this popular revolution. Many were had family members who were imprisoned and executed. So it's a population that has carried with it lots of trauma and loss. And that trauma and loss has sustained itself over the last four decades, even in the diaspora, partly because the relationship between the U.S. and the Iran has been so tense, and that cloud of tension has 
hung over everybody and was in jail under the Shah. My, his daughter was in jail under the Islamic Republic. Another cousin was in jail under the Islamic Republic. Families like my own are scattered around the globe. So there's a tremendous sense of loss and rupture. And I feel like that's one of the things that people don't really understand about the Iranian experience in the last 43 years. And that was only compounded by things like the Muslim travel ban where families were separated because they couldn't get visas, because you know their children were studying here, or they had to go to Canada in order to have an annual visit with their grandchildren. And so there's a lot of indeed loss and sorrow uh, that I think again, is obscured by this narrative about, you know, Iran's kind of place in our own imagination as a place of hostility and religious zealotry. What's lost is the human story and the human story of pain and sorrow and separation and not being able to go visit, you know, like not being able to go to visit Iran because fear of being arrested or fear of ending up in jail, you know, because you're a dual citizen, like I could be, right? So I wrote this poem after I saw kind of the way in which all the traumatic feeling about the last 43 years kind of expressed itself in anger, in dismay, in uh, sorrow, in disbelief. And it's called The Museum of loss, and it's for Iran and her people. One day they will build an edifice on the hallowed ground where they fell. It will contain emblems of kindness, of memory. The lone rose her comrades threw down, the frozen shadow of a hand outstretched to pull her up after being struck by a soldier, or the blood stain of a street where a man took a bullet and his friends lifted him above their heads. And it will also hold the tear-drenched tissues of mothers whose children were taken, arrested, beaten, kidnapped, imprisoned, tortured, shot. And there will be tears of fathers collected in small clear bottles containing oceans of sorrow. And there will be letters to their children that begin with Dochtare Hoshkele Azizaman, my dear beautiful daughter and prayers pressed against their lips and sent out to the sky, worry, be worry beads worn thin by the grandfather counting the days to his granddaughter's return, the letter from the court denying a trial, or the formal charges of spying or treason for writing a poem of revolution or graffiti on the wall demanding freedom for women. And there will be photos too, the woman who was once a girl without a veil, the boy who kicked a soccer ball in the alley, the serious expression on a son's university ID card, and the man whose passport photo was left behind when he escaped across the border to Turkey and never saw his mother again after his exile in Norway. In the large gallery, there will be a room of hope that will show the sister's sign saying, enough, the brother's letter pleading for his sister's life or the lawyer who tried to speak on behalf of her client, but was interrupted and arrested herself. There will also be the dreams of the solitary too. The woman shut away in the small dark cell who kept herself company 
by reciting the quatrains of Hafez and Rumi that her father taught her to memorize but could only recall by writing them in the air. There will be a room of the gifts made for their mothers that were never delivered, dolls made from foil candy wrappers, the drawing of a father to remember his face, pieces of old newspaper she salvaged to make a collage to decorate the gray prison wall, the small notebook a father smuggled where she saved sketches of women in black whose profiles she studied in the afternoon. There will be a room of silence, too, where the quiet passage of days was marked with a faint scratch on the floor, or days without speaking to anyone, the muteness of the needle she held in her hand to darn the hole in her pants with only enough thread for one knee, and it will also hold the green stillness of a tiny seedling of an apple, wrapped in cloth and perched on the ledge of the window, where a sliver of light found its way. It will be a museum for everyone. Oh, thank you so much. One more thing I wanted to say before we conclude is that this is a really important moment for people in the world to be following what's taking place in Iran because the, the rights of women are not just being attacked in Iran, but elsewhere, as well as human rights. And simultaneous with it is the rise of authoritarian governments and the attack on democratic institutions. And that's no more evident than right here in the United States. So I think it's noteworthy for us to pay attention to what happens in a place like Iran, where they're dealing with excessive violent uh, responses by the state. I just want to say thank you, David, for your incredible interest, allyship, and for being such a good comrade. For those of us in academia who labor to educate our students, we sometimes forget that we have stories and concerns and struggles that we need to share with our comrades and fellow activists and professors who are trying to connect the dots for our students at this very critical moment in human history. So thank you. It was a pleasure talking with you. برای توی کوچه رخصیدن برای ترسیدن به وقت بوسیدن برای خواهرم خواهرت خواهرم